The St. Charles County Veterans Museum is a 501c3 nonprofit business. The museum would not exist without the donations of our generous community. Your donations ensure the museum continues to share and preserve the stories of our veterans. Would you like to be part of something special? To donate, visit sccvetsmuseum.org and click on Donate. The Dog Tag Podcast may at times cover sensitive topics including, but not limited to, suicide, abuse, violence, severe mental illness, sex, drugs, and alcohol addiction. You are advised to refrain from watching or listening to the Dog Tag Podcast if you are likely to be offended or adversely impacted by any of these topics. Neither the company, host, director, or guests shall at any time be liable for the content covered, causing offense, distress, or other reaction. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only. The primary purpose of the Dog Tag Podcast is to educate. The views, information, or opinions expressed on the Dog Tag Podcast are solely the views of the individuals or guests involved and by no means represent absolute facts. The Dog Tag does not accept responsibility for their views or comments. This podcast is sponsored by the Renee S. Real Estate Agency located here in O'Fallon, Missouri. She is licensed in Missouri and Illinois and focuses on your personal and commercial insurance needs. Her office is located at 2764 Highway K, O'Fallon, Missouri, 63368. She can be reached at 636-379-9556 or by email at reneesri at allstate.com, R-E-N-E-E-E-S-S-A-R-Y at allstate.com. If you are shopping for insurance and want an active agent that will educate and advise you on the coverage you need, reach out to her. Welcome to the Dog Tag Podcast at the St. Charles County Veterans Museum with your host, Jason Galvin and Jim Higgins. Today in studio, we have Colonel Robert Leaker, United States Air Force. Jim, go ahead and kick us off. Well, thank you, Jason, and welcome, Bob. Uh, I guess I'm always intrigued when somebody comes in, you know, uh, your age and you know, all soldiers since 1973 have been volunteers. So, you, you know, and you spent 38 years in this service. Uh, tell, you know, you likely had a choice. You didn't have to serve. So how did you choose? Why did you choose to serve? And, and why did you choose the Air Force? I was fortunate that uh, I had uh, family members. My uh, brother and brother-in-law's uh, brothers were all in the Air National Guard out at uh, Lambert Field. So, when I came out of uh, high school, I didn't really know where I was going to go or what I was going to do. Uh, it made sense to go into uh, the Air National Guard and uh, find uh, what I wanted to do. It's a good thing. It's a good program, you know, for people that don't know exactly what they want to do. So I had the opportunity it was given to me, and uh, I had knowledge of the Air National Guard. So that's why I went into it. Well, and, and your career is, I think, very fascinating in the fact that you started as an enlisted man a one striper and you ended up a full colonel, right? Yes. And I mean, that's, that's, that's quite a jump. Can you, can you give us an idea what that career path looked for you and how you made that happen? Um, yeah, it's, it is pretty amazing. I was, you know, I joined the air national guard, as you said, a one striper, uh, I was an avionics. I went away to basic training, uh, first at, uh, Randolph, or I mean, Lackland air force base. And then went on the avionics training at Kiesel air force base. And while I was gone, uh, I saw a lot of airplanes flying, never seen that before. So I was like, well, instead of working on them, which is great, you know, I have a uh, huge respect for the maintainers of the airplane and all that, but I thought I'd rather, like, I'd rather fly them, you know. So I came back and uh, to uh, the, the unit, and I had to get some college uh, time in, 60 hours of college is all you needed at that time. Uh, get my own flying, paid for my own flying, and then got into the guard. They finally accepted me in as a uh, pilot. Went into pilot training. From there, it was just a matter of doing what you're supposed to do. You know, being a, a good officer, being a good flyer, doing the things you're supposed to, and 
worked my way up, you know, to run the place. So I was pretty impressed with that. Even I don't normally applaud myself, but, <laughs> you know. Uh, and I think the as I went through it and when I became the wing commander, a lot of the enlisted people really thought that was cool, the people I knew, you know, for me to be the lowest guy on the base rank-wise to, to become the, the highest. So, yeah. So when you – you know, decided you wanted to be, uh, to fly, you, you go to, you know, you're, you're an air cadet and how, how long until you start that till you get your wings? How long is that program? It's about, um, about a year. I know I take that back The whole time for the wings is just a year. If you're going to go off and be a fighter pilot, it's about a two year process. Uh, you first go to pilot training. I went to, uh, a resair force base in Lubbock, Texas, and that's about a year program, and that's when you do have your wings at that time. Uh, when you go through that program, they determine if you're a fighter qualified, meaning you can fly a fighter-type jet. Um, and if so, and I was going back to a fighter unit, then you have other training to go for. So to answer your question, about one year to get your wings, but then beyond that, there's another year of training. So you make me chuckle a little bit when I hear – you know, another year to see if you can be a fighter pilot. Is that mainly because you're upside down, backwards, and vertical and <laughs> supersonic? Well, they <laughs> they determine that in pilot training, and they determine by your skills and how you fly the T thirty seven at the time and the T thirty eight. You know, do you have the acumen to handle uh, quick decisions? Um, you know, doing the things that you just talked about. How well you you know can. Uh, do those tasks of flying in order to say that, okay, you are fighter qualified, you know, things in a fighter. And that's not demeaning to the guys who fly heavier planes at all, but things in the fighter happen very, very, very quickly. Different stressor, so to speak. Very, very different stressor. And like you say, upside down, going straight up one time, straight down the other, you know, passing very close to airplanes at high speed. So, Well, the, the other thing that, I think intrigues me. I've gotten to know you a little bit, but you were a base commander. You were a one striper. You were a mechanic. But all said and done now, you consider yourself a fighter pilot most, don't you? Yes. Yeah. Once it's uh, once a fighter pilot, I believe you're always a fighter pilot. At heart. You may not be able to do it anymore, <laughs> you know, but at heart that is. It's somewhat like, you know, once you're a Marine, you're a Marine. In my mind, once you're a fighter pilot, you're a fighter pilot. I've always heard there's nothing like flying in a fighter. It's it's like a you know it's one of those things that uh, you can't recreate somewhere else. No, I mean you can go out and watch the movie Top Gun, and uh, Top Gun is probably the the closest Hollywood movie I've ever seen that kind of mimics what we do as a fighter. Still isn't exactly what it is, but it comes close in that. But uh, yeah. Uh, flying a fighter is just awesome, you know, to be able to do the things that we do in a fighter, uh, just the maneuverability of them. Uh, it's just, it's just amazing. So you started off T-38, I believe you said. T-37. T-37, that's a small jet? Yeah, twin engine jet, side-by-side uh, uh, cockpit. And then you, you later on, from there you went, you flew the F-4, I believe, did you? Not? Yes. And that's an interesting plane from I'm, I'm obviously not a pilot but i hear there's it's definitely a love hate with that plane the people that flew it absolutely loved it and then you have the purists saying yeah but you saw the thing coming how many miles away and uh it was a unique aircraft oh it's an awesome airplane you know i think uh, mcdonald douglas built i think six thousand or so of them airplanes and they started coming in in the 63s you know, time frame uh, towards uh, Vietnam, later in Vietnam era and all that. But an F-4 is just an awesome airplane. It was my first love. You know, when people always ask me, you know, uh, what's uh, your favorite airplane, F-4, F-15, B-2? And I always go with the story. Like, um, it, it's a fighter, the first one you fly is like your first love in life. You know, you always remember it. You always had the best times there. Um, so it's a great airplane. And younger guys who never flew it, uh, I knew uh, F-16 pilots uh, not too long ago that when they found out they flew F-4s, they want they wanted to talk to me. They wanted to tell they want me to tell all the stories about you know flying the F-4. 
And you're right, the, what we call the double ugly, you have four. You could see it for miles. The early versions all smoked. The engines smoked. It was the later versions that they were able to stop that because the smokers, the smoking engines, you could see miles away. You know, so they eventually eliminated that. So then you went to the F-15, which I believe that's still being used today. Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, that's that had to uh, – I guess it was a big difference between the F-15 and F-4. Uh, you know. Oh, yeah. Huge difference. The F-4 was a, a multi-purpose, uh, you know, fighter airplane, a jack-of-all-trades. Uh, we did conventional bombing. Uh, we got into uh, uh, laser-guided bombs. Uh, we – we, we did air superiority, just all kind of different missions and using different weapons and that. So uh, Maverick was another one. So we did all that with that. Uh, when you got into the F-15, it was purely air superiority, air superiority. That's all it does. Um, kind of a side note on that. I flew the F-4 for, I think it was 10 years. Uh, went to weapons school in the F-4 and... I thought the F-4 was a pretty good airplane, and I did, like I said, jack-of-all-trades. I did all these different missions, you know, fly low, fly high, bomb conventionally, lasers, all that stuff. So I thought when I went to the F-15, doing a single air superiority mission would be much easier. <laughs> well, I was wrong. Uh, the F-15 is such an um, outstanding high-tech airplane, uh, much different than the F-4, uh, that it was a lot more complicated. Uh, when you got in solely into the air superiority world, uh, flying that airplane, it was high tech and a lot harder. So, what was the timeline for moving from one aircraft to the other? Was it based on where you were stationed, or based on what the need was, or how did you move from one aircraft to the other? Usually, in the uh, uh, well, usually stay in the same type of airplane. If you're a fighter pilot, you're always in a fighter. And I'll come back to that later, how we went to the B-2. Usually, once you're in a fighter, you're always in a fighter. Now, in the Air National Guard, the airplanes will switch at the unit, and the pilots you know, train to the new airplanes because that airplane is now part of the unit. For instance, my unit at Lambert Field, the 131st Fighter Wing, 110th Fighter Squadron, had F-4s. Uh, when they went away and got F-15s, then you go through that transition, and it's about a six-month program that changed from one fighter to the other. Gotcha. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. So you were a fighter pilot. Now, you are you got in at the tail end of Vietnam then, right? Uh, I joined in 71, never saw Vietnam. I was an enlisted guy from, from 71 to about 76, I, I believe, yeah. So you probably, I guess it's fortunate you never got into a dogfight, I, I guess I'd say. But you trained, certainly, to be in a dogfight. How do they train you to participate in a dogfight? Well, that's when you're in the fighter, let's take it to the F-15 world. It's the same thing in the uh, F-4, but it's it seems to be more relevant in the F-15 since that's the only mission you did. So let me back up. First of all, the, the thing that's when you are in flying training, going all the way back to uh, UPT, undergraduate pilot training, you are taught uh, – close flying, you know, flying very close underneath an airplane, formation flying. That's one of the things that they grade you on how well you do in that. So you get used to flying close to other airplanes in maneuvering. You can go all type of maneuvers very close to another airplane. But when you get into, so that's the start of it, and that's how they judge to see if you can be a fighter pilot. When you get back into the flying, the actual fighters, and like I said, I'll go to the F-15, the um, – you have different types of flying, different types of uh, dogfighting, if you want to say it. The first one you start out is one airplane against the other. And you can be put into what's called an offensive position to where you are behind the other airplane. And it could any, be anywhere from three, six, nine thousand 9,000 feet back. And then there's a fights on call and it starts. And so you just learn to maneuver uh, just like the uh, World War II pilots or, you know, high yo-yos, low yo-yos, you know, there's all kind of maneuvers, you know, that you do, and you're taught them, you know, just through, through flying training. And so the first thing is one-on-one dogfighting, and then it expands from there to where it could be 2v1, 1v2, you know, et cetera. 
That makes sense. Yeah. It does. My my guess is dog fighting in the real world where you were at was nothing like they show in Hollywood. You're 300 yards behind the other plane, and especially as you get into an F-15 where you've got missiles that are long range. Yeah. Uh, but you get in very close. You yeah. know, you have uh, rules of engagement. If I remember correctly, you could, uh, when you are dogfighting, you could not get any closer when you're attacking uh, than 500 feet. So you would have to break off an attack, uh, with, you know, prior, so you would pull out away from it 500 feet. So, but you do get close. So tell us a little bit about your uh, your timeline of where what kind of bases you were at, and and then how it ended up being a uh, commander of the uh, of the base. Correct. Uh, the Air National that's, uh, the Air National Guard is different. You know, you you are in a unit, uh, and you kind of stay that stay there. You know, that's one of the good things about the Air National Guard versus being an active duty person who moves all over. Air National Guard, you're at your home base there. Okay, now. In the F-15 especially, you deploy other places. Uh, we did a lot of time over uh, flying out of Turkey and doing what's called Operation Provide Comfort, Operation Northern Watch, flying over uh, northern Iraq uh, when Saddam was still in power, uh, trying to keep him and his forces away from bombing the Kurds up in the north. So we would do those missions, okay? We did Operation Southern Watch. Or you may go to a deployment just for training, in Singapore, uh, our deployments in Europe, uh, stuff like that. So you would take, you know, your airplanes and go for two weeks, a month or, or so, and do these type of training missions. So we traveled all over the world. Okay. Yeah, I know Turkey pretty well. I used to live at Insular Lake Air Base. Well, that's where I've, <laughs> uh, I've been there a lot. You know, I, I think I did two or three. I did one Operation Provide Comfort and two Operation Northern Watch I think we'd be over there for a month at the time. Okay. That's what we would fly out of. Yeah. Yeah, so a lot of that terminology sounds familiar to me, the Kurds and, and things of that nature. So Yeah, we would take off out of Insulik. It was pretty interesting. Take off out of Insulik and to get into northern Iraq, uh, there's what we would call a gate. Uh, can't remember the name of the town right now. But uh, we would fly, take off out of Insulik and fly all along just the border, just north of Syria. Uh, and then we would punch into... Iraq from there and do our combat, you know, patrols up in that area. So kind of like in the, comparing it to like the corporate world where you have like an individual contributor and then a manager. So you have the pilots and then the commander. Is the commander still an individual contributor or more of a manager of the individual contributors Uh, or the pilots? He he still flies. He's still part of it. Uh, And I probably didn't uh, answer your question about how I got to be the wing commander. It's just, you know, I, I don't know. You just work hard and uh, continue to do the job. You do different jobs as you go through the squadron. You could be a training officer, and then you uh, move up to a scheduler, and then eventually you can be the uh, what's called the director of ops, and then I became the uh, uh, fighter squadron commander and the ops group commander. Each position gives you a different level of command, and then eventually I became the wing commander. As far as the wing commander, you – you were managing an entire base. I had 1,024 people working for me at the you know, 20, 20 F-15s or so on the ramp. So you had four subordinate, main subordinates in the organization. One ran operations, one ran uh, maintenance, one ran uh, what was called the support group, which is all the you know, CE, um, HR, finance, you know, stuff like that. Uh, and then there was a medical group. They had a hospital in that. So you run all of that, you know, through your subordinate, uh, four subordinate, main subordinate commanders and that. So you still fly, though. You still fly and, and keep current. You know, a little bit harder to be proficient like you would like to. <laughs> yeah. Because you got a lot of other stuff going on. <laughs> well, I, I'm still fascinated by the uh, the idea of your career starting as a one-striper, becoming a base commander and a full colonel. Um Hollywood paints a picture of fighter pilots as being a little, I don't know what the right word is. Arrogant? You know, I wouldn't know <laughs> if I'd say arrogant, but they're, you know, they live a different life. I mean, it's, 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 and yet they tied you down at one point and you were at a desk a good deal of your time. Yes. That would have been a tough transition for a fighter pilot, I would have thought. 
Oh, it is. It's extremely hard. Because uh, for myself, you know, I wanted to go fly. That was my whole whole thing. And once I got past the working on them, I wanted to fly them. So that was in my heart. Once you get that in your belly, it's 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 hard to get rid of. So, uh, And then, like you say, to move to a desk, you know, it just kind of, you have to refocus yourself. Uh, you become that you become the CEO of a large corporation, in essence, like that. So you can't have all the fun anymore that you used to. Uh, <laughs> and a side note kind of story is that um, my secretary and others on base would always know when I came back down from flying a mission. They said you would be smiling. <laughs> <laughs> it was written all over your face. It was written all over my face. You know. Well, the the other part of that is is base commander. You've got a lot more responsibilities, and you're not just over the the Air Force guys at that point. You're over ground troops, everybody, right? Well, when I went to combat in at back here in St. Louis, it's just a thousand twenty four are uh, airmen, you know, Air Force people. But you were over in, at the base there, and you were in charge of ground troops. In Iraq? Yes. Yes, yes. Oh, no, I take that back. I was not in charge of them. They were tenants on my base. Uh, Kirkuk, uh, the base that I ran, I took care of all the infrastructure. I had eight or 900 of my own people who were, did the command and control, logistics, all kind of different jobs. I had a hospital. Uh, we controlled all the air, sports, air airspace in the northern third of Iraq. On What you're talking about is there was the, the 3rd Infantry Brigade from Schofield Barracks was there. Uh, there was two or 3,000 of them that resided on the base, okay? they I, I had no control over them, uh, but I ran all their facilities. You know, I was the one who supplied them what they needed. The other one was the, the 2nd to 6th Cav. They had the uh, helicopters on the uh, other side of the base. I took care of them. You know, I did not, they did not come underneath my command per se. There's, there's a lot of people on the base, you know, uh, CIA and DIA and all these what I call spooks were all on the base. You know, they didn't report to me. I just took care of them, you know. It's just such a diff, different task running a base and being a fighter pilot, one man, one plane. Yes. Very different. Um, along with that became, came a lot more responsibilities on that base. Uh, I mean, you oversaw a lot of the operations and responsible for it. You had a hospital, there was casualties coming in there. So, you know, one of the things that I think is, is a little bit, I don't think the public understands it, but people think about PTSD and they think about boots on the ground, you know, the grunts. And yet there's stressors, there's stress of any kind that happens throughout everybody at the base. Um, can you kind of talk about some of the stress that you saw and how it was affecting and, and what was your role in trying to help the troops? Yeah, combat is different. Running a base is different, you know, when you're in combat versus peacetime. Um, a lot of stressors, uh, but the foremost thing from a commander side is that you have to make sure the mission is getting done. What does that mean? That everybody knows there's communication, what's going on. Everybody is behaving in the way they're supposed to. And that a lot of the stressors obviously is coming when you are constant, not constantly, routinely under attack, uh, with rockets and martyrs coming in. So everybody has to do their job in order to get through that. Um, that means even leaving your quarters. For, like for my staff, we had to leave our uh, quarters wherever we were and go to a central facility, a base operations center, to recover the base. So, you know, that's a stressor. Uh, you already mentioned the hospital, uh, the wounded coming in. Uh, we had uh, a level two trauma center was our hospital, so... What would happen is the the injuries would occur in the field, and I facetiously say that the Army would uh, field dress them, um, and then they would be choppered into our base where we would take them you know, from there, and we would treat everything except where we got into head, head wounds, 
Uh, we didn't have the right equipment to, to analyze that. And, uh, but either or, we would, we would uh, take care of them the best we could, operate them and everything, and then send them down to a blood, which was a level one trauma center. So that's a stressor. So you have the, you know, the shelling, rockets and mortars. You have the wounded. Um, you have all those things going on all the time. They become part of your life. You know, and then the other stressor that happens is uh, if people don't stay busy, they they can get into trouble, you know, so on base. So you have to keep the people focused in their jobs, keep them motivated, you know, the best you can. Does a does a combat base replicate anything from a peacetime base as far as uh, function and availability of resources like a gym or uh, any type of those kind of facilities that you would normally find on stateside base? Sure, yeah. Uh, not not everything. We didn't have no golf course, <laughs> you know, but uh, <laughs> uh, there was a gym. Uh, the Army had a gym. Uh, there was another one, too, a base gym. So there's two gyms on base that we could use. There were some soccer fields or kickball fields and stuff like that. Uh, but there was a, uh, uh, a BX, PX, whatever you want to call it. There was that. There was food kiosk in one court. So there was things that you could, you know, go do and get different types of food versus going to the normal dining facility. So uh, there was barbers. There was all that stuff on base, yeah. So they were pretty much taken care of, not not in the most comfortable way because they were overseas in a combat zone, yeah. but there was some comfort on base that they could they could look towards when they were off or when they were had some downtime. Yeah, yeah, by okay. all means. What did you find most challenging when it came to having to take care of things that you didn't want to take care of, like disciplining, you know, whatever it might have been, where there was a disciplinary action that you had to take, and it may not have been something very comfortable for you. Did you have people that did that for you, or did you have to manage that as the as the commander? Each commander, and, you know, many sub-commanders below you, uh, they're responsible to do that. But inevitably... Uh, if they can't resolve it, it'll roll up to you. Up okay. to the, it keeps rolling uphill. Uh, the one case, um, two um, security police in stateside started playing games with their guns, and uh, which was a no-no. And uh, when they came over to the theater, it blew up. One threatened the other with blank guns, and and uh, on the stateside before they deployed, when it came over. It was very, uh, they became very hostile, and their commander couldn't handle it. Uh, so it eventually would roll up to me uh, in order to handle it. And that, in fact, at that time, we had uh, uh, the National Guard Bureau involved, the One Star down at Ballard involved, you know, trying to resolve this whole thing. Uh, other things like uh, people wanting to go home, uh, they couldn't go home. I couldn't release them to go home because, you know, they were homesick or whatever. Or you would get into a guy-gal thing, and uh, when you get into combat, you have general order one, number one, no alcohol, uh, no no uh, man-woman, you know. Fraternization. Fraternization, none whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So you would have to deal with them things all the time. Okay. Yeah, so, I mean, you're, you're managing just like you would at any other time. It's just heightened because you're in a combat zone. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's kind of like running a company or a corporation, but somebody's throwing bombs at you. Right. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, Exactly. <laughs> so you mentioned that every once in a while missiles did come in. I, I kind of look in my visualization of this is you're on a base, very protected area. You really don't want your people going beyond the wire. They can't. Be defense. Yeah. So you're kind of just, you never know when it's going to happen. Did you, were there regular rocket attacks that came in and... That had to have been very stressful for the people not knowing. A big subtle difference is if you're infantry, you're going into combat, it's right in front of you, but you're kind of just waiting for yeah. it to happen. That had to have been really stressful to your guys. Yeah, it was. Um, you know, the first thing you would hear, oh, the first reports would come from the guard towers, um, and then, you know, that there was, uh, uh, they saw flares or they saw a rocket coming in, and then you would get the... Uh, um, Battle stations, um, condition red call would go out. And, uh, yeah, it's very stressful. Um, repeat that question again. Well, it's, it's uh, you know, you've, you've got a lot of stress. You know, it's 
you you can't leave the base, so you're you're in very tight quarters. I'm sure you had recreation, but you know the stress relief was limited in the fact yeah. that you you just couldn't go off base and do anything because there was other issues off off base. Yeah, I'll, yeah, people were not allowed to go outside the wire without my approval, and uh, we only did that on rare occasions. My comm group would have to go downtown uh, to service some of the communications at the embassy something like that, but they couldn't leave without my approval. Uh, and, yes, the rockets and mortars would come in, and uh, at any time, you know, they could come in. We had one instance early on uh, in my tour over there uh, where they would come in every time the sun went down, usually around 7, 730. Uh, we had one guy uh, that would shoot from – Kirkuk, there was a river valley that went around the base, and he would shoot from the south side when it went down. The sun went down. He'd come out with his 107-millimeter uh, uh, rockets and launch them in, two or three of them at a time. You know, so I named him Rocket Randy because <laughs> uh, he would attack uh, all the time around 7, 7.30, and he knew that. Uh, but then as we were there, it got more complex where they were bringing in grenades uh, launching grenades in and uh, larger uh, shells, projectiles into the base, and that could come at any time. So so how does the role of, of a base commander and probably more your the guys underneath you, but, you know, we're saying that there was a lot of stress, there was that fear. We've kind of also talked about that you don't have to be infantry to feel that, you know, and develop PTSD. How How do you deal with that? on a base, you know, where it's it's not your conventional combat. It's just you never know when a round's coming in. Did you see a lot of people, your your soldiers suffering from, you know, that? Did you get a lot of them requests saying, hey, I need to go home? No, I mean, for the most part, you know, when they go to combat, when, when I take the Air Force people like myself, you know at least you're going into a combat zone, full-up combat zone. Uh, you're going to be on base, but you know that. Uh, you know the potential is there, and you, you're a professional, so you focus on your job. So most of the time, it won't affect you. You know, most of the people are working hard and doing what they have to do. Now there will always be, you know, some that uh, once the first, once they're there for the first time, and the first rocket comes in, it it will get their attention. And that where you have the staff had to focus on to them and say, make sure that you do the proper, you know, things in order to take care of yourself. You have to wear your battle gear when we tell you to wear your battle gear. Uh, when you hear uh, conditioned red, and if you're in the defect uh, dining facilities, you have to sit down and put your uh, back up against the wall. So it was responsibility mainly of my seniors. Um, sergeants and those people to make those things happen. And you have to make sure that people do that to stay alive. Was there a ramp-up time from the time that they got to the base for their first time till they did their job, or was it like you hit the ground running and hit you're doing the ground your job? running. Okay. You hit the ground running. So they're learning these things of, of the what you're supposed to do in case this happens on their way there. They get a briefing once they're there. How do they know what to do, I guess? They know what to do. Prior to getting there, that's part of the Air Force training. Uh, I say Air Forces, that's primarily, oh, that's what all I did. But they are taught that peacetime in the United States, in the stateside and all that. So they know what to do. Uh, they practice it maybe once a year uh, in exercises. But when they get over there, it may take them a little bit to realize that, hey, this is the real thing. And I've got to do those things I was trained to. Yeah. So, Bob, you were over in Iraq at the base. How long were your tours over in Iraq? I was, uh, that, uh, at that time, the Air Force was doing four-month tours, not including travel time and spillage. So I, my time over there was just about five months. Okay. So you deployed a number of times throughout your life. Have you been to any exotic places, any great places? <laughs> <laughs> Singapore was pretty exotic. You know, I spent some time there. Um, Don't uh, they call that a fine country because they they'll fine you for anything yeah, you do wrong? Fine, <laughs> spitting on the sidewalk, or whatever. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Singapore, Okinawa, a little bit. 
mainly in Europe, uh, anywhere from England throughout Germany. Uh, we'd always pass through Spain on our way to Turkey. Uh, Turkey is a pretty neat place. Turkey is a pretty exotic place in my mind. And I'd like to go back. Um, we went to some of the, when we had time on the weekend, uh, like I went up to Cappadocia one time, which was a really neat area. Took a trip down to Antioch, which is right next to Syria. Um, St. Paul's Church was out of Antioch. So, you know, there's places like that. So, yeah, it was a great time. Did your wife ever get to travel with you? Uh, on, only on the good trips. <laughs> uh, yeah, she, she'd go to Hawaii with me. Um, she came over to Germany to see me. I was working over there for four months one time. She came over for a while. So, yeah. What's the communication like while you're, you know, you're over overseas working in, in a base where you're at a combat zone? Do you get to, to call your family a lot? Do you get to communicate with them and, and see them via video chat or anything like that? Or is it pretty much closed off? How does that? No, you can talk. Uh, I was fortunate because I was commander of the base. You know, I had the ability in, in my quarters, in my trailer, you know, uh, to pick up the phone and have uh, a service line that would take me back to uh, my base in St. Louis and they could connect me. Uh, But there's always ways to communicate back. It was very, very easy to communicate back for the most part. And then kind of, you know, off the back of that, how did, how did your family handle you being gone for four months at a time? Was there resources that they were able to tap into to, to, uh, you know, be able to talk about what they were going through and things of that nature. Oh, sure. You know, the Air Force is great, and I'm sure the other services are great also. Uh, the families, there's family support groups on each of the bases. Like the Air National Guard base at Lambert has its own family support group. So when you are deployed, that group stays in touch with your family. For instance, my garage door opener broke while I was gone, so somebody from the family support group, you know, volunteers go over and gets that repaired. So you know your family is being taken care of for the most part. So you can really concentrate on your mission. Yeah, you have to. Yeah, yeah. you have to, and, and you know you can do that. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's all you, you have to do that. You have to concentrate on the mission when you're over there. You can't be thinking a lot of other stuff. So your last assignment was the base commander. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Then? Okay. So mm-hmm. how close were you to retirement at that point? I, that's I retired from that. Okay. So 38 years, uh-huh. and then you came home retired. And we hear a lot of veterans say the first day I didn't put the uniform on was very strange. I mean, can you relate to that or? Yes, I can. You know, uh, yeah, 38 years at going in and out of Lambert field, uh, the air national guard base at Lambert field. And then all of a sudden not having to get up and go there, basically not put the uniform on and you're at home. Uh, so it's hard to explain, but at there's some relief, <laughs> like I'm done working, but at the other side, it's like, now what do I do? Uh, I myself didn't have a exit plan, which I should have. We were fully able to retire, you know, financially, and family was great. And, uh, but I don't know when it really comes down to it if the wife was ready for me to be around all the time. <laughs> 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 I, uh, I always tell the story, I won't digress too much, but I was, you know, I was about four or five months into retirement, we're sitting on our screen porch drinking a cup of coffee one morning, and my wife goes, uh, hey, uh, I'm going to go to the store to pick up a few things. And I said, okay, well, I'll go with you. She looked at me, and she goes, you know, we don't have to do everything together. (laughs) And that's when I had to go find another job. (laughs) Do you ever look up in the sky when you see a fighter and say, man, I wish I was back in the saddle? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, but I also realized I, I, I can't do that. Yeah. And um, can't do it f- because I'm too old for it, but also my body couldn't handle it. The fighter is very, very um, tough on your body. You know, mm-hmm. I have significant back and neck. I've had neck surgeries, significant back injuries or issues, I should say, you know, from flying, uh, flying those high-G fighters. So You give a lot up with the body there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very stressful on the body to fly a fighter. But before I uh, I forget it, but you also moved briefly to the B-2 bomber, mm-hmm. which is 
it's quite a bit bigger than F-15, is it not? Uh, it's, it's funny that the, uh, the B-2 bomber is about the same length uh, longitudinally as a uh, uh, F-15. But the wingspan, obviously, is much, much larger. So it's a huge airplane. Is it kind of like driving a Corvette in a Carver, or is it? <laughs> uh, I would say it's like flying a, uh, well, dry, uh, an F-15 be like a, I don't know, Lamborghini, Ferrari, and then you go to a Mack truck with, you know, <laughs> with a B-2. <laughs> it's an awesome airplane to be 2 you know, but yeah. Was that more electronics even? Even more electronics than the F-15? No. <clears throat> well, it had significant amount of electronics, you know, in the B-2. Uh, I found it harder to operate the B-2 electronics just because of the way they were mechanized. Uh, the F-15 was very easy. It was extremely uh, difficult, but the way the controls and uh, the weapon systems worked, was much easier to do in the Eagle, you know, than the B-2. Now, in the B-2, theoretically, you could carry nuclear weapons mm-hmm. in that, couldn't you? <clears throat> yeah. So, but I'm I'm thinking you were briefly in that you probably didn't carry nuclear weapons? Or? No. Uh, I was only in it for a year flying the B-2, uh, and I was just starting to get into uh, uh, what's called a PRP, Personal Reliability Program, and that's a whole huge vetting system. So I never really got into nukes. Uh, I just did uh, the conventional flying. So the other thing we hear is you've got 38 years out. Your your wife has very subtle, been su- she subtly, if that's the right word, told you, hey, go do something else, right? <laughs> I mean, were you kind of prepared to be able to move into a different career in the civilian life? It sounds like at one time you decided I need – I do need to do something else. Initially, I wasn't prepared. You know, I thought I retired from the military. I was 57, and everything would be fine, and it was fine, you know. Uh, but I got extremely bored also, other than, um, you know, the wife saying, go do something else. She didn't say that, <laughs> you know. But um, the issue with families in the military, as you can imagine, usually the spouse, either, you know, uh, takes care of the household, and the other one is off running around the world. I was the guy running around the world and always doing stuff and gone two weekends a month, usually at least. Uh, and then she's taking care of the house. You know, she has her own routine. You know, the wife, the spouse has her own routine. And then when all that is over with and you try to come back into that, you are the outsider who's running around the world to try to come back into the household and now start directing things. You know, <laughs> or trying to do things with your wife all the time, it, it just doesn't work. It's hard. You have to have an exit plan. I didn't have one when I first retired. That's why I went back to work as a contractor and then, uh, you know, was able to settle down a little bit and have an exit plan to come. Yeah. I've heard veterans tell me before that they don't, preparing for that is very difficult and they don't have as much resources as they feel like they should. You know, some of the training easily carries over to the civilian life. Some of the training does not, you know. But uh, do you think the military could do a little bit more to transition people into the, the back to the civilian life? Yeah, they could. You know, uh, they talk about it, and there's counselors and all of that. But, uh, yeah, they could probably do more about it. Uh, you can go to hiring programs and stuff like that. But it's tough to, you know, to come out and then try to find a job or move on or do something different. I think it is. Do you think it's more about satisfaction in a job or something different? And what I mean by that is you've, you've flown all these planes, right? Mm-hmm. You've done some really intense things, and then you go to a job where you're an IT guy or you're a construction worker or anything that you can think of, right? And it, do, you, do you find or feel that it could be a job satisfaction mismatch it versus a skill for, set. It could be for some. You know, what I found more than anything was, you know, I considered myself as a base commander uh, when I was trying to fill out applications. And you look how, you know, I was a, well, I was actually a title as a wing commander, 
uh, how do you marry that up with the corporate world? You know, and I had to research, well, you're actually kind of a CEO of a large corporation. But a lot of the terminology in the military doesn't translate very easily to the corporate world. So you start trying to fill out resumes, and how do you tell the corporate world what you did in the military? Most of them don't understand that. So uh, I actually went out and worked with the headhunter for a while uh, and to help me trans. Uh, find the right verbiage in a resume that would marry up with the corporate world based on what I did in the military. So there's, there's a, that crossover is, is hard in my mind, unless you are a, uh, it guy and that is your job and you come out, you'll probably find an it type of job in the civilian world. But when you get in the command structure type of stuff and trying to transition over, it can be, can be difficult. So you, you had, 38 years, what, what did you learn about yourself through those 38 years? Um. <laughs> <laughs> um. What life lessons did you learn? What did you learn that you liked a lot, Not besides flying the plane? I like flying fighters. Like yeah, you're, you're yeah. you're what else did you learn? I mean, you were administrative, you were, you were a hands-on guy, you were so many things. I think you, you learn more about yourself. You, know, you, you learn that you, especially when you get into the leadership positions, uh, you need to learn who you really are. And one of the biggest things you have to learn, is if you are an A-type personality, which most fighter pilots are, well, they all have to be that way to do what they do, uh, that you can't expect uh, other people to live and work at that same level you do. You know, so you cannot be as demanding. You have to realize that not everybody walks in the same shoes that you do. And that took me a while to learn that, you know. Uh, overall, I think, you know, the biggest thing is you learn and you it deepens is your feeling for the country, uh, for the flag, uh, especially when you get into combat and you see what happens in there. Uh, you, you really realize how great the country is uh, and how awesome and it is and how lucky we are when you go over to iraq and see what happens over there or these foreign countries like i've been even you know the other ones that are not in combat and then you return to the u.s it's just like holy cow we got a great place here absolutely. if we can keep it <laughs> absolutely so looking back on on military service there you know What's your takeaways? Um, do you feel like, you know, a lot, I ask a lot of veterans, do you think everybody should serve? Um, what do you miss most about it? I think everybody should serve. You know, uh, draft, you know, I was under the draft system, although I didn't get chosen and I volunteered to get in because uh, I didn't know what else I wanted to do. Uh, but I think everybody should serve. I think that would do great things. You know, the way our country is now, there's a lot of um, kids out there that don't have good fathers and our fathers at all. For them to get into military and learn that structure and discipline you know, is huge. I think it gives you a basis for the rest of your life because that's what you have to do. You're talking about what you learn. You learn in the military how to live with other people, for one thing. You, you learn discipline. You learn how to, to, to work and live with other people in all types of uh, environments, from peacetime to combat to living in a foxhole, you know, with, with somebody, you know. Uh, there's just so many lessons in there. Yeah. What do you miss most about your time in the service? We, we hear a lot of people say that there's friendships and bonds that develop in the military that you can never find in the civilian world. And, of course, you've been the enlisted guy and you've been the officer's and I would think the officer rank is doesn't have quite the camaraderie that the enlisted guys do. But what do you miss most about your time in the service? Well, first, you're, you're right. Uh, I really believe that the enlisted corps have much – it's a different type of com camaraderie. Uh, but they become very close, and it's a, it's a whole different world than the officer world. Uh, the officer world, flying fighters, it's, it's very uh, competitive – uh, it's, it's a different world when you get into that officer world, flying world, and that. What do I miss most? Uh, 
I guess it's a, it's a, a, a sense of satisfaction about, you know, what you do every day. You get up every day, you know, it is disciplined. You go to work, you work with other people, you're doing good things for the country. It's not that you can't do that outside, but um, I miss some of the friendships that are in there, although uh, there are a lot of us old-timers that, you know, get together, you know, from time to time. Uh, I'm not certain. Well, we've talked a lot of, about a lot of stuff and, and uh, learned a lot about your career and, and your experiences. Is there anything else you want to leave the listener with tonight um, that's really important to you or for your message before we sign off tonight? The biggest thing is, like I kind of alluded to, what do you learn out of it is, uh, you know, the country, you know, how great it is. I mean, there's so many people out there that don't really understand how good they have it out there. When you serve in combat zones, when you travel around the world uh, and see the things that uh, are out there, uh, everybody's got to, you know, step back into the U.S. in my mind and just really, really, really realize how good they got it. And then the other piece of it, kind of self-centered or military-centered, I should say, is is that um, they have to, the people who don't or have not served in the military really un- need to try to understand uh, what the military veteran has done. Uh, it's just hard to explain sometimes. It sounds fun that we went out and, uh, you know, I'm the guy who went out and uh, flew fighter airplanes around the world. It's really cool. Uh, but any person in the military, uh, there's a price for that, being in the military. The, 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 the impact on the family is just incredible. The impact, as you, you know, you know uh, on combat vets coming home is just incredible. So I just hope that the public over time can absorb that and understand that and then thank a vet. <laughs> Very well said, and thank you, Colonel. We're going to go ahead and sign off from the Dog Tag Podcast at the St. Charles County Veterans Museum. The Dog Tag is brought to you by the St. Charles County Veterans Museum. The museum is a 501c3 nonprofit business. Do you like our podcast? With your support, we'll continue to bring you great programming. If you'd like to donate, go to sccvetsmuseum.org and click on Donate.